And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, creative, futurist, and mad scientist Lucas Risotto explains how he's building the future through augmented reality, virtual reality, and how imagination is the cheapest prototype of them all. Children live in augmented reality already all the time. You give them a brick and it's not a brick, it's a spaceship. That's augmented reality. Kids already have it, but we lose it. And now we're trying to build a version for adults. So the way you build augmented reality for adults is by going back and thinking about things as a kid. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe and leave a review to Digital Void on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. So back in 2016 and 2017, the big to-do tech-wise was these little funny devices called Spectacles made by Snapchat. And I was like, oh my God, I have to own these. They weren't exactly the best looking glasses, but what they did is they had these like teeny little cameras on it, 180 cameras, and it allowed like very wide angle view of a life recorder. The only problem was these Spectacles, you had to go to get them. They had these vending machines all over the world. And it was kind of like this spectacle for the Spectacles. And I remember waiting in line for hours. You can only buy two at a time. So brought some people. And I wanted one for Malloy New Media and I wanted one for myself because I was not sure what the applications would be, but I knew at that point that I was studying VR and AR and I wanted to see what the future of this would be. Well, the future of VR and AR turned out to be still in progress and spectacles work neat and cute and they they serve their purpose, but they weren't exactly the doorway to the future. And so when I started studying VR history, I started studying it in, in grad school and wrote my dissertation on an alternate history of cyberspace. And the alternate history was the one that was lesser known than the histories everybody's aware of, which is this history of Jared and Lanier creating VPL, the power glove from Nintendo, all the way up to this gap of time, and then the rebirth through Palmer Lucky, then the Oculus Rift, and then it's inevitable purchase by Facebook, and then Palmer Lucky's move towards being part of the military apparatus and actually doing not so great actor things. But anyway, at that point, there was this alternate history that was really undiscovered about what happens if VR was more of an experience outside of the tech? What if it was something that collaborated with your mind and made you think differently rather than something that enhanced a technology view? or made it so it was like, okay, this is the spectacle of the spectacle. What if it was us? What if VR was us? What if we were to experience a new realm of reality that was a bit more on the border of digital and real life? Sort of like what we do here at Digital Void is like kind of explore that space. And so I figured is that AR probably be the inevitable outcome of this, that VR was an immobile device. And that is something that I, I spoke about on Team Human a while back. But it was this idea that because we're tethered or eyeless, so to speak, we're stuck inside the machine, it's not an accessible product. You can't cross the street wearing virtual reality. But AR is something that can literally be seen through. It can and mixed reality, MR. You could touch digital objects or see them in physical space. And I was like, this is it. Novelist uh, and journalist Timothy Maughan actually wrote a, an amazing book that made me think differently about it called Infinite Detail. And I, and I highly recommend that too. And it's about the future of the reliance on specs, the idea that AR is the way that we'll interact with the material. But I think that we're a little further off than that reach. And I think one of the fears that kept creeping back into my mind after watching iteration after iteration is that corporations really would love to have this tech work in their benefit, not in our benefit, not in the human way. And so it was upon that that we discovered Lucas Risotto, who is this amazing VR artist. I've met several 
VR artist throughout my experience of working and researching virtual reality. And Lucas is a very interesting version of a VR artist because it's not just the work that he does, but the way in which he shares it. Lucas also runs a YouTube channel called Lucas Builds the Future. And one of those things is about not just telling the story about how VR and AR really works with you, but how to help people gain access to making it themselves. Not only were we able to talk to him about his projects and what he's doing, but what it means to actually understand augmented reality. And some of the things he said are, are sit with me now that makes me realize that Lucas is one of the people who will build the future. Somebody who will think about how we have to augment things, but not by an overtaking of or replacing of real life, but rather a way of seeing into it. And the reason I bring up the spectacles is at one point, and the way I, I came across Lucas is this article about him building a real life time machine where he uses the spectacles to record his past and then play them back to his present. And while studying media archaeology and deep time, I've always been fascinated with that concept. And Lucas actually built it. So it was kind of amazing to see it. The spectacles that I purchased years ago and wasn't sure what to do with them, that somebody was usefully making them work in a way that was very artistic and meaningful. But it was all beyond that, that some of his other projects that he's done where he builds a futuristic portal or he built a working marauders map really show that AR is not something that's exclusive to the tech elite but it's actually accessible to us so long as we have the creativity. And as Lucas mentions, that creativity comes with us. We've had that since our childhood. But what we have to do is really augment our uh, previous reality to remember the way that we thought about things as children because we could bring them to the technology of our present. And what that means is that we, as people, we can keep our humanness in the future of technology. And it was really amazing to talk to Lucas, who's literally building that future. Lucas, thank you so much for being here. It's really an honor. Seriously. Can you just tell me briefly, what brings the inspiration to your work? Thanks. Uh, the answer is just by playing a lot, just by doing whatever I think is the most fun and interesting thing I could be doing at any given time. And of course, it took a little bit of time for me to get to a position in which I could just like do that every day. And there are many sacrifices with um, doing this and we can talk about it later, but it, that's the core of it. It's just, it's just play, embracing play, doing what, only doing whatever is the most interesting and most fun thing in your head right now. So walk me through one of your YouTube videos, maybe like maybe the Marauders map or the, the one where you break through the wall to see your friend. Do you just think of that one day and you're just like, I'm going to see how that can work? Yeah, of course, a lot of it comes together in the middle of the way because many of the ideas are like are just so, so crazy and that some of the best ideas you have, you have basically on the way into making these things. But basically, like the Time Machine Project, for example, it's something that I was sort of thinking about low key for a year, but I was building it as something else. It was actually a memory palace, not a time machine. And then one day it clicked as a time machine and I started doing the video, but I had no idea what the video was going to be, how long it was going to be. And I just made it like two minutes at a time. And I discovered throughout the process what the story was. And then I would go back and then change some things. So it's really, it's this really organic process. There's some planning. I start with like a structure and then it all falls apart and I find something better. And that's usually how it goes. That's brilliant. That's like, how do you find like recording it and documenting it is helpful to your process? Um, not really. I actually document it after the project's over. Um, I do the project first and then I spend like two months trying to make the video and find the story. It doesn't really help me make it. But of course, I only start a project if I think it gives back people something new and interesting, like a new interesting idea, a new perspective on things that they can carry throughout the rest of their lives. And it has like an absurd or cool or fun hook. I never settle with just the project. There has to be like something else in it. So in the case of the Harry Potter project in the Marauders map, I'm like, okay, I'm going to 
gonna go move to England to do this into the most castle looking place I can find and do the whole project there and kind of like mix it with that oh yeah and of course I'm always trying to one up myself I don't like to do the same thing twice ever which is a, a blessing and a curse oh I'm sure I give you a massive amounts of credit for just the amount of creativity that you put into this because I think that's the uncommodified work that you are doing is like this is the space of play we can still use these tools to do things that like are completely distinctly not designed specifically for for marketing purposes but rather like imaginative space which is your favorite technology that you like to play with I mean I think it has to be statistically speaking augmented reality but I like there a lot and this year I'm I'm like already trying to expand and teach myself some artificial intelligence skills and brain computer interfaces and I want to go beyond VR and AR so I can also not be you know tied too much to this medium to whether it's doing well or not in my travails over the last several years I met a lot of VR artists and I, I like VR artists a lot because it's a willingness to use the tool to change how your mind works in in virtual space and I really like the idea that when you do yours you you have to reimagine the physical construct that you're sitting in so like the one where you break through the walls is like you reimagined what that meant to see from a, a perspective of the audience member but also from your eyes too to me that video is like an immersive experience with an extremely immersive extra experience with the AR when you do that how do you like I I'm very good at imagining things in like three dimensions do you see everything like do you see it from every point of view do you imagine it um what do you mean from every single point of view what exactly are we talking about when I watch the videos I or I'm deconstructing it as like you have an idea of how you want to tell the audience about what project you made but when you're making it in like a room and you're doing photo mapping or photo imaging to me I can't personally make that project that you did and I can't make that video either because it's the amount of level of immersivity in that video is like incredible. So maybe the question is like too personal because maybe it's just natural for you to kind of like think in digital or 3D, three-dimensional space. And not that I want to go and like say, oh, what's your, what's the inside of your brain doing at that exact moment? But like, how do you know what you're going to be doing with the project when you see the space like that? My point actually, my point of questioning was just whether you're talking about develop it, what is my brain doing when it comes to the augmented reality application of it? Um, or if you're talking about communicating the augmented reality application to the audience through cinematography. Both. Yeah. That, because that combination is like a step beyond just creating the art and allowing people to like kind of visit it. When I visited VR spaces, they're usually tethered. You know, you're, you're stuck to the, wherever the computer is with your wire strapped to the back. And I noticed you have a very portable unit for the, I think you're wearing the magic leap. And that, that idea is like, you're, you're telling a visual story that requires us to see it in three dimensions, but you're also in a space as you, as the creator that's looking at it in three-dimensional space. So I, that's why I'm looking at like both of those. Right. Well, I, I can say when it comes to AR, it's just, you, you just imagine the digital artifacts as part of anything else. It's, it's just really using your imagination. Imagination is actually the cheapest way to prototype almost everything. People sometimes like catch me just like walking around and doing weird things with my hands, but like just waving my hands around and pretending that I have like a sledgehammer or, or something. And really that's like, you can already know from a user experience standpoint is something feels good and visceral by just imagining it's in your hand and doing the action and you can close your eyes if you need to um, but really by just let so if we're prototyping like in you know a super powerful hammer that creates this crazy fire attack when it hits on the ground look at your hands imagine you're holding the hammer do the motion of hitting the ground and see how that feels you can already get a pretty good idea um, way back when so I guess I'm just habituated to imagining things like that and and basically seeing them into 
integrate with the physical world because that's the beauty of AR. It's just digital objects are not different from anything else. They're like integrated into your world perfectly, which means that they can interface with your world any way that your mind wants. When I started like playing with VR and like we bought a VR lab where I was working at, one of the things that I think held me back personally and some some of my students was the uh, self-conscious behavior that comes from playing in space, the acknowledgement that someone may watch you. That's something that I think we have to overcome, right? Like something if it was moved to the future, we have to understand that gesture control and self-consciousness of that, that it's got to be put backward. We can't, we won't be able to play with these things properly if we're like stuck thinking about our bodies in that way, right? Yeah. I mean, most of the problem just comes from the fact that the headset blocks you completely right now. Once we add mixed reality features that show people coming in and out of the room, I don't think it's going to be that much of a problem um, compared, like, compared to anything else, personally. I think it's a temporary uh, UX problem. I agree with you. I hope I hope that's the case. When, when people get fully into the headset, we've noticed that like their, their experience of the outside world kind of did drift away. Our mask, Oculus mask, had a lot of paint marks on it from so many people running directly into walls. <laughs> it got so like out of like out of like so immersive in that space. So it was like kind of funny, but I, I love MR and, and AR more than anything. Like I believe that's really where we're going in the future. I believe we're going to be a headset based society almost where gesture control and voice commands that kind of augment, literally augment our reality so we can interact with them. And I, I have you ever read uh, anything by Tim Mon, uh, the author who wrote Infinite Detail? No, I'm actually like a terrible, terrible reader. I read tweets and articles. Oh, that's right. Well, it, to make a long story short is that he believes or he wrote in his book, which is now already disproven because he he placed his book, I think, in the second term of Trump's presidency. Although uh, that's, you know, that's a topic for another time. But he said that at a certain point in the 2020s, everybody is basically given specs, which is like the Apple Watch, but eye mounted and AR mounted. And that was our way of like interacting with gestures and voice commands that allow us to interact with society. And it became very normalized very quickly, the idea of your body moving in physical space, but as a gesture control to digital products. And I, I think that's, I mean, I mean, it's more of a statement than a question, but I think that's very much where we're going. Where do you get your inspiration from? Where's your source? Where were you a game? Like, was it from gaming? Was it from movies? Like what, where, what's your foundations? I, I have a philosophy that like, basically you should try to do projects and things that only you could do as a consequence of all your interests and all the skills you possess. So my videos try to combine my storytelling interests and skills, video editing interests and skills, programming interests and skills, design interests and skills into a single thing that basically combines almost everything that I know. And thus you end up with a more unique and creative product. So I think it's really just, there's no like single point. It's just being playful all the time, entertaining ideas all the time. Most of them are really stupid and really useless. And I think about them three days later and I'm like, how did I think that was good? But it's, it's really just a constant process of playing with ideas um, and playing with ideas when you're talking to others because there's a very small number of people that I talk to and we naturally do this like creative ping pong in which we're throwing each other ideas and we're playing and we're having a lot of fun and that always ends up somewhere really, really interesting. So playing idea ping pong with as many people as you can is also a great, great way of, of getting ideas flowing. And a lot of people don't like idea ping pong. They don't see the point, but it is, I guess, where I have gotten 
on a, a good number of my ideas, but it's just being attentive, just being playful, just being excited about new things and not being afraid of having terrible ideas that three days later, you're like, that was, that was dumb. <laughs> Do you feel, have you got, how's your response? How's the feedback on uh, your projects? Do people adopt these? Do they make them on their own? Do people want to play with you? Like how, how, what have you heard so far? Yeah, it's been very interesting because by mainstream standards, the numbers are not that good. But when it comes to the VRER community, there's a very, 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 very passionate group of people who really loves it, which is, um, and thankfully they support me financially on Patreon, which is the only way I could keep, I would keep this going. I could keep this going. So it's it's gotten this niche love of the people who understand the medium. And I hope that as other people understand the medium too, they will maybe grow to love the content in the future. So it's kind of like a bet I'm taking that um, this is going to be something that more people understand and fall in love. But the reception has been really good. And it's mostly been... So one thing I didn't mention as a creative that I think it's probably important to mention is what I've done with my videos is that I freed myself from the burden of having to release products. And once you do that creatively, the world opens up because you can do all of these things that are so incredibly interesting, but no one will touch because there's no like return on investment, right? <laughs> uh, like the time machine that I did with the spectacles, it's so specific. Like I could, I could never make money off of that right now, ever. Um, and if I could turn it into an app, there'll be like 200 users. It'll be a pain in the ass to, 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 to run and to fix and to update. But because I removed myself from that constraint and I just made it, um, I'm able to explore ideas that I think uh, a lot of people want someone to explore, but there has been nobody who, who was willing to just, you know, take on that risk, I guess. So I think that's actually the main reason why people like it right now is that I get to explore ideas that are just the most interesting without having to concern myself with like, oh, but this is going to be a good return for investment. That's beautiful. So I, I actually want to talk to you about the time machine because I, I found that article independent of, of knowing you or following you on anything. Like I just found that it ended up in my feed and I was an early adopter to Spectacles. I was like one of those people that waited in line and like bought a whole bunch from the vending machine. And I ran a couple study abroad trips where we use the Spectacles for almost the same purpose, but we don't have the technical skills that you have. So we imagined that outcome. I said, what if, you know, what if we have this POV, this, this life recorder? And because it's your eyes, you have the ability to transport yourself there. So what do you think about the idea of these technologies also enabling us to understand a sense of ourselves in different layers? And, and what I mean by that is more of that the term of a deep time, which is the idea that we've, we could revisit the space twice, but we're a different person every time we visit that. And the spectacles themselves act in this very beautiful manner of like being the eyes of where you are and like that moment, do you think that has a useful expectation for like the future of our knowledge about ourselves or learning and growing? Do you, do you see that outside of like the, the tech? So that's, that, that is exactly why I was interested in VR and why I still am. Because what it is at its core is that it's turning our senses and thus our perspective into software you can download and distribute. And if you can download perspective and experience at a massive scale, what you have is massive amounts of human growth, especially if you design you know, software to, to make you experience yourself and your body and other people in a number of different ways. So I, I totally agree. And it's the reason I'm most excited about this and the potential for introspection and for growth and for making us much, much wiser. Because as I touched on in the Time Machine video, once you see yourself and getting to see yourself walk through life, it's very impactful. And you get to notice aspects of your behavior that maybe people won't tell you, but I jump out immediately at you when you look at yourself as a third person. So there's a lot 
lot of potential there for growth. And that, to me, is the thing that excites me the most about VR and AR. When we do uh, trips on uh, like study abroad, we go to adventures around the, the, the world and the country. I've been very privileged to like, travel with this. We all always bring 360 cameras everywhere we go. And when we developed, uh, we love it. I mean, one of the things is we developed something called the Space Humanities Kit. Uh, my research partner and I, Matt, Matt Applegate and I, we, the idea of this was that when you record video, you also keep the 360 camera running and we put it on an arm mount that was like the distance of a human being next to the camera. So we enabled people at home to actually participate in our projects with us. So they were able to like put on a headset and kind of be there. Uh, when I when I look at your work, I recognize that there's actually a step further that we can't engage. I personally can't engage with yet because I don't have the tech. But the idea is that there's play involved that we weren't really doing. Ours is sort of passive. You're just sort of there. When we want to think about play, how do we tell people that it's this is like going to be an important factor in like how we understand like the future, how we get ahead of what is the next stages for how we're going to communicate with one another isn't just like passive viewing of somebody else's experience, but actually a way to play with experiences that maybe you weren't part of in the first place. Um, right. Yeah. I think it's just, I mean, the expectation that things are more fun if you can interact with them in, in fun ways. Yeah. It just changes how you emotionally engage with the things you're connecting with. It can also bring joy to your life. And a number of other health benefits because I just, we already saw the impact and the negative impact that certain kinds of user experiences and user interfaces can have on people if designed negatively. So there's probably a positive result as well if you do it in the other way. So one of my favorite uh, apps at the time, I haven't used it in a while, is VR Chat. And VR Chat always reminded me of in 1989 or 1988, uh, Meredith Bricken was part of the Autodesk Cyberspace Project, which was this, the first basically non VPL project of virtual reality. And its intent was actually a little bit different than VPL's projects because it was more around the, the terms of like the body, the humanness. And Meredith Bricken was always asking people to consider what it would be like to be something that isn't a human body. So she was always saying, okay, so normally you put on the headset and you're, you see your hands. The first thing, she would, this is 1988, so it must have been nuts. And so they would look at their hands and they would like look at them and be like, oh my God, I have virtual hands. And she goes, but why look at your hands when you can look at a lamp and be like, why can't I be the lamp? Why can't I be the desk? Like, why can't I be other objects? That was something that I think maybe was lost, A, due to the tech at the time. It was just wasn't fast to process that type of knowledge. But I think that's also like one of the shortcomings of VR marketing is that it often wants you to be inside of a mobile body rather than like the idea of like what VR chat was to me, which is that you could kind of choose your avatar and kind of be whatever, as long as somebody could code that avatar. Do you, do you find tools like VRChat useful? Do you like that? Or is that like extensions away from where your work, you see your work? Oh, I mean, it, it's definitely like to me, the most exciting part of VRChat and the most entertaining for everyone who watches it. Using VR to just become a person is at the very least uh, a missed creative opportunity. And especially like in games that it, almost all VR games put you as a you know, in the hands of someone who's like super powerful and there's no one who like is doing the opposite, right? Of making you feel like a piece of trash, even though there's so much potential for that. It's someone will, it will happen. But I mean, yeah, your chat is very interesting. That's where most of the creativity in the platform exists. Um, that's where the funniest gifs and clips are. It's not something I am too um, focused on. I, I have a, I don't know why. I, I'm not very attracted to anything that concerns like identity that much. I'm more interested in bigger ideas and have how like systems interface between the world and us and each other. I mean, of course, identity plays a component, but I just haven't been too personally interested in my work to explore identity because I feel like there's too many people already who are 
put a lot of emphasis on that already. So where do you see the future then? Do you see it just much more of a AR environment rather than VR? Do you see that as like where the, where we're going and as our next steps? Yeah, I've always been very, very skeptical of social VR as a completely mainstream platform. And that's because I grew up in online communities when I was um, a teenager. So it wasn't social VR, but it, I had a community of people in Gary's Mod, Team Fortress 2, etc. that I met with every day. We were each other's friends. We had our forums. And it seems that VR, the VR chat community seems to behave in exactly the same way that these communities have behaved 10 years ago. And that is that basically the people that have the most to gain in those social VR spaces are the people who have a hard time having meaningful social connections in day-to-day life. And that is, is just that's how it used to be with me. And that's how it seems to be with teenager communities that are more excluded or face, you know, harsher um, judgment, like the trans community. Those are the people that like enjoy VR chat the most. And it's many features for self-expression. So when it comes to just the, you know, the mainstream social, I definitely believe that social AR is something people are going to embrace more. And social VR will remain more as a niche to give people what they cannot find in real life, at least for the like next 10, 15 years. The children are just like prisoners of their parents. They can't leave their homes. They don't play on the streets. So social VR is their only source of actual like independence where they get to go wherever they want to go and talk with whoever they want to talk with, which is why there's so many kids in Rec Room because they are the ones that have gained the most value from that experience because they're getting to do social interactions that just they can't do in day-to-day life while adults have options. Love that. We, we talk very often on this show about what the extension of digital medias can be when you think about the space of humanness and the space of human behavior. And oftentimes we bring up a sense of wonder and the sense of curiosity. And just like Farrell Dalrymple's books, like like the wrenchies and stuff like it's oftentimes that when you leave your childhood you're almost forced to leave behind a lot of the play and a lot of the imagination and we find that children and the ability to have wonder and curiosity from children is something that we don't respect enough because that is something that allows the untethered to the rules aspect of a lot of this what you just said is really poignant i never really thought of that is like how much social vr is going to play an impactful role in like the development of the products and projects as we go forward do you do you ever take that into to mind when you're developing projects like what how how would you different ages interact with this type of media? Not about how different a- ages um, interact. Um, that's that's always like a surprise that I get after, especially with the Oculus Quest game that I released where I thought, go, what kids interact with it. It's just hilarious and amazing and I love it. But uh, to your point about childhood wonder, if you asked earlier how I got here, and it's basically by um, turning off everything I thought I should do in day-to-day life and just listening to my inner child self, the most creative people that I know, the most intelligent people that I know have that sort of playfulness and whimsicality about them. They're not afraid of imagining things in their head, much like a child does. It's I mean, Children live in augmented reality already all the time. You give them a brick and it's not a brick, it's spaceship. That's augmented reality. Kids already have it, but we lose it. And now we're trying to build a version for adults. So the way you build augmented reality for adults is by going back and thinking about things as a kid. And I think that's like, that's truly what unlocks creativity and what makes life more fun in general. Oh God, that's beautiful. That's, <laughs> that, that is exactly like, what the hell? my God, you spoke right to my heart there. I, I mean, even to this day, I still like take my, I still have like my tchotchkes and stuff on my shelf and I still make them do, I make them fly, you know? So it's like, you're right. That is augmented reality. I think, yeah, they see the rockets, they see the fumes, they see the fire. 
They see everything. You're absolutely right. That's something that I think AR and MR are going to be able to provide back to people in a way that I think will be one of the side effects of how enjoyable it is. And what I appreciate most about that is that it's not really a place for commodification. And I think I just want to touch on that that article, which is a bit controversial, which is like that MJ Galt wrote about how billionaires see VR versus how we see VR. And I unfortunately, I like talk to a lot of people who are the money people and they, they don't see the creativity. Like they don't respect it in the way that like an artist would. I, I think that engineers and artists like yourself, like have to remember that like art isn't a commodified space. It isn't something that has to just to return that investment. It is something that has to promote joy and actually be something that doesn't have to be it. I get really excited to see you make these projects. And I also get really excited to make the projects, regardless of the fact that I may not have the technical acuity that you may have to do so. And I think that's something that I think sits outside. And I think it's important to remain non-commodified. So it's interesting because there's definitely, um, and even though it's not commodified, there's definitely like these projects, these crazy projects definitely play an economic role in the industry at large of getting people excited from both the greater side as well as the mainstream side. And I think it's an important one because part of the reason I started making these is that I wasn't excited about VRAR anymore. I hadn't seen anything that made me smile or be truly excited. It would just be like, oh, that's cool. And that would be the extent of, of, of the excitement. Having you know people being able to support me directly is really the thing that makes or breaks this. And I've been fortunate enough that most of my patrons are in the tech industry, which means they have most disposable income. But I imagine what is it like for industries that are not associated with technology that don't have people that make you know $150,000 a year and how difficult it must be for them. So in one way, I consider myself very lucky, but I also think that there is there is a larger economic utility to this sort of like wild scale open minding of both the audience as well as the creative community. And I'm already seeing the effects with people like making projects that are inspired on my projects and stuff like that. And what that can, you know, down the line, the dom- how, what it can domino into. What do you recommend for people who are short on the tech? Like, how do you recommend they get involved and start making things? So I, I can say that like my first mixed reality app was an augmented reality periodic table. It was not that big of a deal, but people really liked it because they were like, oh, it's something I, I understand, but in AR. I made it with, uh, when I finished it, I had like maybe seven months of experience in Unity. What I did is that I picked a project that was like very, very, very simple because a periodic table is basically a single button that you code and you just duplicate that lots of different times and add little changes to each one of them. So YouTube is where you can learn everything. And when it comes to projects, it's just never start where your ambitions are because your skills have not caught up to it yet. You have to like take this process or like this, this healthy dose of humility and be like, okay, I'm going to do a project and it's not going to be a big idea. It's not going to be a big thing, but it is going to be something I can do in a weekend. And then you're going to try to do it and realize that that was too complicated and you need something even simpler. And it's just this process in which you need to find out where you are first and slowly grow the projects with your skills. That's the harder thing to do. And once you cross the one year mark, one, especially the two year mark, you enter the point of no return in which you can pretty much do anything, but it's it's going to be hacky and it's going to be broken, but you can find a way to make it work. And that's when you start to take off. But it is a process and it does take time and it does take effort. And YouTube is all you need. Just start recreating. Um, VR AR development is basically game development, but with VR AR plugins on top. So start by just make, like recreating classic games with tutorials on YouTube. Just it's okay if you don't understand what you're doing. Just keep doing it. Eventually you're 
your brain will start to pick up on it. And then once you're semi-comfortable making tiny games, you can start moving into virtual and augmented reality and have the playground to yourself after like three months. That's so heartening to hear. Like, that's great. I think there's a little bit of self-consciousness that binds itself, like where people are like, oh, I can't do it. And it's like, well, are you sure? Because maybe you haven't just tried that, you know, maybe you haven't even gone that far. And I'm, I'm pro, very pro. You'd learn on YouTube. One of the things that I really liked about humility is the part of the, the futuristic portal. When you mentioned like that, you took two days to get the iPad to come in to do that, the photogrammetry part. And you were like, well, you could learn it, you know, <laughs> you could actually like do photogrammetry. But what I think was really great is that you, you as an instructor, you're basically, you've taken the role of being a YouTube tutorial in many ways too. And so here's the question is that as somebody who's responsible for other people's learning, do you feel like you like you as a teacher? And do you feel like that would be the method of how people should be learning? Uh, I definitely think I would like myself as a teacher if I keep doing what I'm doing now, which is like, I'm not hiding the complexities. I'm not hiding the fact that stuff goes wrong and stuff breaks. That That is like a big part of the process, which is usually miss, usually 100% missing from these project-based um, videos on YouTube because people just show like, people have an interest, I guess, to showcase themselves as this hyper powerful hacker that does no wrong and that's it's entertaining to watch but it's also like it's it, it's a little disconnecting even though I do have sequences in which I hack my IQ and become a hacker but there's also like all the stuff that goes wrong makes it into the project but yeah it, it, it's making it fun and, but I guess yeah I guess I would like myself as a teacher as long as I'm focused also on egging them on and their ideas right giving them the energy to do the things they want to do um, rather than just me talk about what I did because that's inspiring to an extent, but I think as, as a teacher, what your role is, um, is less to not only inspire them, but literally like energize them and empower them and find out wh what it is they want to do and give them the support they need to do it. Your humanness is really, really amazing. That's the most uh, uh, compelling part of your channel and the most compelling part of your work is that you seem to always seem to be having fun. You seem to be having a lot of play. And what's important is like you eliminate the, the, the mechanical nature of some of the channels. You eliminate the mundane and you focus on some of the imperfect natures of it. And I think that's actually quite beautiful. And Josh and I, like, that's part of this podcast is like, we're always focusing on that. That's what we mean when we say void is like, we have to bridge that gap between what is the perfect nature of like digital technology and where does the human itself interact with that? And I think that's something that we have to constantly be prioritizing. Otherwise, these machines dictate how to use it rather than us tell the machines how to use it. So what are you working on next? So I have a virtual reality project that I finished and I and I submitted to a festival. It's something no one asked for and it's ridiculous. And a lot of people are going to laugh and a lot of people are going to be very disappointed in me. And there's another Lucas Builds the Future episode. It is another AR project about one that plays with music. Yeah, I finally finished the project. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that one. I was kind of like grasping being a little bit beyond my reach when it comes to the skills, but I figured it out and now I'm going to spend the next month and a half making the video, but it's very sweet and very nice. And my plan is just to keep doing these and until I find a project that I really fall in love with, but this is what it's going to be. It's me just trying to do whatever ideas I think are the most exciting and that no one has done it yet and keep growing the channel until I finally figure out what I want to do at large in this industry. And that's, that's, that's part of the plan. Well, I love that we're getting the ability to actually watch you grow it and come up with these ideas. I think it's, it's beautiful that you're sharing your experiences with us and you're making sure that people recognize your talent as an artist and a creator and engineer and everything. Like, I think that's important for us to see. And I, I thank you for that. So thank you so much for your time. How can people find you? How can people support you? Okay, wonderful. Yeah, you can follow my, my work on 
YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, but specifically on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash Lucas Risotto. Two Zs and two Ts. Um, you can also support me on Patreon. That's literally where most of my funding in my life comes from right now. So patreon.com slash Lucas Risotto. And yeah, I hope to keep doing the projects that no one else will do and keep moving the language and the conversation forward. And I'm really happy that you had me here so we could have a conversation here as well. So thank you so much for the time and the space. Thank you to Lucas for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.